Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Books podcast with me, Laura Slattery. Earlier this month, I interviewed novelist Sally Rooney at the Irish Writers' Centre in Parnell Square in Dublin. Sally was there to talk about her excellent debut novel, Conversations with Friends, a lucid, painful, addictive story of 21-year-old Francis, who embarks on a torturous affair with 32-year-old actor Nick. The situation is complicated by the fact Nick is married to Melissa, who Francis's friend and ex-girlfriend Bobby seems very impressed with. The novel tracks Francis's relationship with Bobby, Nick, Melissa, her parents, her body and her place in the world. Published this year by Faber after a seven-way bidding auction, the novel was praised in the Irish Times for its fearless writing, while it was described in The New Yorker as a new kind of adultery novel. Sally, who is from Castlebar, has been shortlisted for numerous awards, including the Sunday Times PFD Young Writer of the Year Award, while her story, Mr. Salary, was shortlisted for the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award. Without further ado, here's Sally Rooney. Thank you very much, Laura, and thank you everyone for coming. It's really lovely to see you all here. So Sally, I've, I've read that you wrote this novel without initially meaning to write a novel. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how Conversations with Friends came into being? Sure. Um, so I started writing it at the end of 2014, um, having never really successfully written a novel before. Um, and I had the idea for, well, I mean, you described it so well in, in, your, uh, in your introduction, um, basically this two college students who become sort of embroiled in the lives of a married couple. I always say older married couple, but they're very young for a married couple. They're just in their early 30s. Um, and when, I, when that idea struck me, I thought that the story would mainly sort of coalesce around the figure of the woman in the married couple, so Melissa. Um, and so I started a little Word document on my uh, laptop, and it's still there, and it's called Melissa, and it's from like October 2014. And that was... The, the the germ of what became Conversations with Friends. And strangely, the first few pages are pretty much intact. Like, that's what happens. That's how they meet um, at a, after a spoken word poetry event in, in the middle of town here. Um, and that, that sort of framework became the animating focus of the novel as it developed into something much longer than a short story and then even longer than a novella and then eventually became sort of undeniably novel length. Um, that was really how it came about, which is kind of like a pretty fumbling way to write a novel because it was never it was never planned and it took a lot of drafting before it really came to resemble anything coherent at all. And as the, the, the plot, did it sort of take shape as you as you wrote it or did you go back and think, well, I'll, I'll change those plot details, the sort of structure of the story? Well, both. Um, so as I said, when I first began it, I thought that it would mainly be about Melissa. Um, and as it has ended up, if, if any of you have read it, Melissa is probably the least in focus of the of the primary four characters. Um, so I never planned when I started writing the short story that anything should happen between um, Francis, who's our narrator, and Nick, the married man. Um, but like once they got on the page together, I could just see it was going somewhere and I had to just take that dynamic wherever it led. Um, and that ended up becoming, um, certainly in terms of plot, I think, the focal sort of dynamic of the of the book. It's sort of the the... Um, strand that offers the most, I think, momentum and kind of keeps turning the pages is the the issue of Francis and Nick throughout the book. Um, 
But having said that, it took an awful lot of drafting. So like if you could see the first draft of this novel, like mad things were happening. The characters go on different trips together. I think they were like in London at one point. Like there was all mini kinds breaks. of... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Secret all kinds of deleted scenes that never made it anywhere near the, the finished thing. So um, there was definitely a lot of... Um, and what I did, the, the method that I used was I would finish a draft um, and then I would put it away for a month and I would have like four weeks away from the characters and during that time try and write short stories and try and write other things, essays and stuff. So I was, I was writing a lot at that time. And um, so I would use the four weeks to do some more writing and then I would come back to conversations with friends, sort of take it out of the drawer metaphorically, although obviously it was on my laptop the whole time. Um, and then and then reread it with sort of fresh eyes like not completely fresh because it had only been four weeks since the last time I read it but I would be able to see at that point um where the story kind of hit a stop and a lot of it is just about bringing bringing sort of momentum and dynamic into the scenes um like when you're writing something it's very difficult to read it as if you're a reader and to know how it's paced and to know whether it's gripping you whereas when you come back to it I think you have a you have a finer sense for how it's moving um and that's and that's kind of and that's that how I did yeah. facilitates the the self-editing of of the book before you yes. let somebody else look at it <laughs> absolutely yes so yes. just uh, we've we've been publishing a lot of um, articles this month about conversations with, with friends on the Irish Times that's what we do in in the book club but I was struck that uh, Gavin Corbett wrote um, about the first pages of the book and he really felt that you were successful in establishing um, the tone of the novel you know through Francis' narration and it actually reminded me of a, a recent interview I read with uh, Philip Pullman where he was talking about how fundamental tone is to a novel. You know, you can change the structure or the plot at the last minute, but to change the tone of a book, is you, you have to change every single sentence of a book. Um, is that the tone, that sort of, was that immediate, the tone that you have in Conversations with Friends, which is uh, just a huge part of, of, of the, the beauty of the book? Um, was that there from the beginning? Yeah, and I mean, as I said, like those opening pages are still pretty much, I mean, almost sentence for sentence intact from the very first draft that I wrote before I knew that it was going to be a novel. So I think in that sense, certainly Francis's voice remained intact and, and also the other three characters remained intact. So like Bobby, Melissa and Nick were exactly the same in all the different drafts. They may have gone on like weird mini breaks and stuff that they shouldn't have gone on but their characters remained completely more or less the same and it was my choice as a writer like what situations do I put these people into so as you say I think the Frances's voice is obviously very key in the book it's we see everything through her eyes and that has pros and cons as a writer um but it was very central to establishing what you call, quite rightly, the tone of the book. And equally, I think the characters are the other element that were kind of there from the beginning. And it would have been very difficult for me to do anything at all had those elements not worked. I, as you say, like you can mess around with your plot, but if you don't have the tone right, it's really difficult to know where you're going. So, I mean, as the title suggests, that there there is a, a good deal of dialogue that's kind of central to, to the book. Um, and there's a kind of a ping pong rhythm to that. And I think you actually used, you referred to table tennis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, that's Quite right. In the in the kind of conversations between Francis and Nick, um, so uh, you know, is that something that comes instinctively, or do you, do you hear that in your head as you're as you're writing the sort of how you would speak to people in real life, or via email? That that's the kind of rhythm that you settled on in the conversations between these friends. Yeah, I completely felt like I was just notating a conversation that I was hearing these characters have. Like I I. 
I rarely really had the sense that I had to strain to think what they would say to each other. They're all pretty talkative. So it was a case of putting them into a room together and just seeing what would happen. Like I, I felt a strong sense of almost like I was watching this film in my mind play out. And I had to just sort of quickly, uh, as rapidly as I could, like notate the film that I was watching so that it would not escape me. And then I could go back and sort of take out what didn't work and replace it with things that did. Um, but yeah, I really, I really strongly had the sense, and I guess it goes back to the idea that the characters were quite, quite fully formed from the beginning, um, that once you get them into a conflict situation, you kind of know, you know what their vulnerabilities are and you know what they're defensive about. And so quickly the dialogue establishes itself along those lines. Um, there's always a little bit of conflict, I think, um, that's important to push the dialogue forward. It's very difficult to write a scene where two people are completely agreeing with one another because yeah. it just ends very quickly. Um, well, I mean, I think th there's so many examples of great kind of, you know, we could, on one level, they are clever comebacks that the characters have, but you can see at the same time that they're deflecting some, o some other emotional um, undercurrent that they just don't want to acknowledge. And Francis in particular doesn't want to acknowledge uh, how important or emotional certain situations make her feel. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a sense that Francis is someone who doesn't like extreme sort of melodramatic or sentimental displays of emotion. Um, a, a prejudice that I probably share to an extent myself. Um, and then for that reason, she feels a need to sort of disavow all emotional displays. And she takes that obviously to an extreme. It becomes sort of um, like a virtue for her to remain completely detached and aloof at all times. And I guess part of the, I was going to say fun, that's definitely the wrong word, but part of the interest for me in writing the book was sort of forcing Frances into situations in which she couldn't remain detached um, sort of forcing her to live life even though she was trying in a sense to shut life out um, and just seeing how she would react to that experience and to what degree she could sort of accommodate um, extremes of emotion into the person that she believed she was. So on the one hand, she's kind of seeking kind of scraps of, of affection and, and maybe that's all she really feels that she's entitled to. Um, but she's also battling the sense that she doesn't really have the right, she hasn't earned the right to, to sort of feel what she feels. I think it's very clever those two things are happening at once that she's kind of, there is a certain need there, but there's also a sort of a self-protection mechanism. Yeah, and it's true that she probably feels um, that she hasn't earned the right to like extreme sort of um, histrionic displays of emotion. And some people who read the book say like nothing happens in this book. And obviously, you know, for Frances, like this is the most sort of turmoil she has ever experienced in her life. Um, so for her, a lot is happening, but obviously, I mean, you know, taken on a broad global scale, not a lot happens in the book. It's just one sort of relationship. And then the kind of you know, the kind of um, ramifications that flow from that into other relationships, um, which is like a pretty small, a pretty small plot. It's just six months in the life of one person and it's not life or death stuff. Um, so I guess she has an awareness of that too, that like the things that are happening to her while they may be life changing for her are not really, you know, globally significant. They're pretty small she events. Has a, she has a guilt about that. Yeah, I think so. And she finds it difficult to allow herself to feel huge emotions when she thinks like, oh, my, you know, this is nothing compared to what most people go through. So so I'd love to ask you to read um, yeah. now from the book. Um, so as you mentioned, I mean, Melissa is a character that, that, that Frances, uh, she covets her husband and pretty much everything else about her mm. life. So I think you're going to read from Melissa has invited... Um, 
Frances and, and her friend Bobby uh, to, to France. So if you want to introduce it, that'd be great. Yeah, um, so it, this uh, is when <laughs> Frances the narrator and her friend Bobby have gone on holiday with the couple, um, Melissa and Nick. And um, Nick has driven Bobby and Frances down to a little lake. Uh, and it's short, shortly after they arrive in France. Um, Nick parked the car and we all went down a little lane surrounded by trees. The lake lay blue and flat reflecting the sky. There wasn't anyone else around. We sat on the grass by the water in the shade of a willow tree and ate cream pastries. Bobby and I took turns drinking from the bottle of wine, which was warm and sweet. Can you swim in it, Bobby said, the lake. Yeah, I think so, said Nick. She stretched out her legs on the grass. She said she wanted to swim. You don't have your swimsuit, I said. So, she said, there's no one here anyway. I'm here, I said. Bobby laughed at that. She threw back her head and laughed up into the trees. She was wearing a sleeveless cotton blouse printed with tiny flowers and her arms looked slender and brown. The light had moved and we were no longer in the shade. She started unbuttoning the blouse. Bobby, I said, you're not really. He can take his shirt off, but I can't, she said. I threw up my hands. Nick coughed like an amused little cough. I wasn't actually planning to take my shirt off, he said. I'm going to be offended if you try to object, said Bobby. Francis is the one objecting, not me. Oh, her, said Bobby. She'll live. Then she left her clothes folded up on the grass and walked down to the lake. The muscles of her back moved smoothly under her skin, and in the glare of sunlight her tan lines were almost invisible, so she appeared whole and completely perfect. The only sound after that was the sound of her limbs moving through the water. It was very hot and we had finished the pastries. I drank some more wine and looked out for Bobby's figure. She's literally shameless, I said. I wish I was more like that. Nick and I were sitting quite close together, so that if I inclined my head I could touch it to his shoulder. The sunlight was inordinately bright. I closed my eyes and let strange patterns form behind my eyelids. The heat poured down over my hair and little insects purred in the undergrowth. I could smell the laundered scent of Nick's clothing and the orange oil shower gel I had used when I stayed in his house. That was awkward yesterday, he said, about the girl at the airport. I tried to give a cute, impartial smile, but his tone made it hard for me to breathe evenly. It sounded like he had been waiting for an opportunity to speak to me alone. And immediately I was in his confidence again. Some girls just like married men, I said. He laughed. I heard him. I kept my eyes closed and let the red shapes in my eyelids unfold themselves like kaleidoscopes. I said I didn't think that was true, he said. Loyal of you. I was afraid you'd think they were being serious. You didn't like her, I said. Louisa, you know, she was nice. I didn't dream about her at night. Nick had definitely never told me that he dreamed about me at night, or even that he especially liked me. In terms of verbal declarations, I didn't dream about her at night was the first thing I could remember him saying that implied I had any special status to him at all. So are you seeing anyone at the moment, he said. I opened my eyes then. He wasn't looking at me. He was inspecting a dandelion between his thumb and forefinger. He didn't seem to be joking. Well, I was for a while, I said, but I'm afraid he ended it. He twisted the flower stem back and forth, smiling a reluctant smile. He did, Nick said. What was he thinking? You know, I have no idea. He looked at me, and I was afraid of what expression my face was making. I'm very happy you're here, he said. It's good to see you again. I raised an eyebrow and then turned my face away. I could see Bobby's head dipping and rising in the silver water like a seal. And I am sorry, he said. I smiled mechanically. Oh, for hurting my feelings. Nick sighed as if placing down something heavy. He relaxed, I could feel his posture changing. I lay back and let the blades of grass touch my shoulders. Sure, if you have any, he said. Have you ever said one sincere thing in your life? 
I said I was sorry, that was sincere. I tried to tell you how nice it is to see you again. What do you want? I could grovel, but I don't think you're the kind of person it would appeal to. How well do you think you know me? I said. He gave me a look then, like he was finally dropping some long pretense. It was a good look, but I knew that he could practice it just as well as any of the others. Well, I'd like to get to know you better, he said. Thank you very much. Um, for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, um, I mean, the whole sequence in France is just a really um, skilled development, I think, of, of France's predicament. And actually, one of the uh, the sort of the, the single lines, my favourite single lines in the book comes near the end of the France uh, sequence where uh, Francis has uh, provoked a bit of an, uh, 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 an argument with Melissa's very important friend, Valerie. And um, there's a couple of other things going on. Uh, but at the end, she says she tells everybody in the room that she thinks she's going to get some sleep. And then the final line in that paragraph is, uh, everyone agreed it was a good idea that, that Francis go and get some sleep, which is, a, which is great because like, it obviously points to her insecurity as well as maybe the, the sense that she has behaved a little bit badly yeah. <laughs> in, in it because she's under this strain because of her feelings for Nick. And, uh, and, but I suppose it was, it's a real feelings for, for Bobby I really wanted to ask a bit more about because you know it's, it seems like Bobby's a very hard person to be friends with because she is so almost because she is so uh, confident and outgoing and there's a kind of a pressure there to be, uh, you know, as, as, as great as sort of Bobby is. But also then you're reminded of, of course, the book, just how devastating it clearly was for Frances that, uh, that, 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 that her relationship, her sexual relationship with, with uh, Bobby came to an end. And so do you think that was, it's Frances's own sort of un, undealt with, that's right. That's a very, that's a very inelegant way of putting it. Her, her, her residual hurt from that relationship that really that pushes her into the situation with Nick, or you know, why is she compelled to 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 flirt with Nick at the yeah, beginning? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I I definitely think the the relationship that she has with with Bobby obviously has these sort of pools of unresolved emotion that are not actually being tapped when we meet them at the beginning of the novel. Um, and they're, they're best friends and their friendship, I should add, is, is quite tranquil. They're, they're really, really close. They go everywhere together. They do everything together. They're great fun. And they're, and they're happy. It's not like we meet them and there's all this tension between them and it takes Nick to sort it out. Like it, they're, they're happy together at the beginning of the book, but they do have this past that they haven't come to terms with. And it is probably um, when Francis embarks on this relationship with Nick that that stuff gets unearthed and part of that is just because they've never been they've never had serious relationships with anyone other than each other like they were together in school when they were 17 18 and now they're 21 and there just hasn't been in that interim anything all that significant in either of their lives in terms of you know love and intimacy and um, so they're really just like soulmates who are together all the time and it takes the intervention of another sort of possibility like an alternative romantic possibility for them to finally come to terms with what they mean to one another so I don't know if I would say that Frances is drawn to Nick because of the unresolved tension she still feels with with Bobby I think it's probably at that point in the book a separate thing of its own but certainly it once it starts begins to impact on her relationship with Bobby in unexpected ways I think yeah and she keeps a lot of secrets from Bobby, not just the affair with Nick, but also she doesn't tell her uh, really the full story about her health. And uh, and I don't know, well, perhaps it's 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 Bobby's 
blindness to her own to Francis's financial situation as well. But there, there ends up being quite a lot of secrets between them, and that comes between them as well. So, how important was that to the to the sort of the narrative development of the story? Yeah, um, pretty important. And I guess it it goes back to what we were saying about Francis's sort of inability to conceive of herself as like an emotional being that she likes to think of herself as like super rational and. Um, for that reason, it's hard for her to talk about issues that bring for- forth um, a maybe involuntary emotional response. Um, like, I mean, I think that's, I want to say, I think that's a little bit normal in, in, in its minimal form, that like it's relatively easy to talk about, you know, politics and maybe a little bit more difficult to talk about like a difficult childhood um so it's understandable that she is on the one hand sort of comfortable conversing about certain abstract topics and they love having sort of abstract intellectual discussions and it's maybe a little bit more difficult for her to kind of like open up as it were um to use that kind of awful phrase um but yeah I guess the the other thing is that she feels that Bobby is so able to cope with everything and Bobby probably also feels like Francis is so able to cope with everything because that's how they feel they need to be with each other. Um, Francis doesn't find it easy to say to Bobby, oh, well, actually, I can't do this. Like, I find this really difficult. Um, and and equally, Bobby probably feels she can't talk like that to Francis either. Like, they both kind of perform this slightly, um, like, cool, detached, hyper-competent, relaxed kind of... Um, persona and at the same time I think it's probably true to an extent like they're both pretty competent individuals they're not they're not massively rocked by small inconveniences in life um but when it gets to the extent that they are dealing with like you know uh, quasi-crisis situations in some of what happens to Frances in terms of her health and stuff like that um that she then doesn't have the vocabulary to deal with that because she never developed it so I mean the characters have been described in in reviews as, as privileged and a kind of an elite and a lot of terms like that um, do you think that's being overplayed a little bit? Yeah, some of it definitely overplayed. Like I saw someone refer to the characters getting on a private jet, which they do not do. So, <laughs> some of it's just like, I mean, obviously the married couple who they meet are quite um, financially secure. And for people, uh, I was going to say of my age, the characters are younger than me, um, to look at people in their mid-30s who like own a house is like, oh, it's, to, it's <laughs> I togetherness. would love to own a house. <laughs> that will never happen to me. So it's kind of a sense of like economic jealousy, but it's not jealousy of um, immense wealth. It's not jealousy of like a Lamborghini. It's jealousy of like you have a house that your landlord can't kick you out of. Which I don't think is, you know, which I think is like an, it's a, it's a fairly normal thing for people to feel. Like, I wish that I was financially secure is a, is a fairly normal feeling. And to an extent, that's what Francis is seeing in their house. And to an extent, it's like um, a certain performance of taste. Like, she thinks their house is, is beautiful and very tasteful. And they have nice, like, china. And they have, and they have nice, you know, they, they, they drink really good coffee. And she finds that lifestyle very enviable because it shows that the people who live it have a certain, like, um, sensitivity to the aesthetic things in life or a sensitivity to beauty. So I think those things get conflated a bit. Um, obviously, Melissa and Nick, the married couple, are quite privileged and, and, and are fairly aware of their privilege. And I think that does get discussed in the book. To the extent that Frances is privileged, she is in college. Um, and she's not totally keen on getting a job or she yeah but that's not necessarily an aspect of her privilege like I think that's because she recognizes that the whole system is broken and that even if you want to get a job 
Um, a, you might not be able to because she's studying English, so like, good luck. Um, but but also that like, if you do, um, you're not you're not you're you're not going to have like a a fair deal at work necessarily. You know, you could be exploited by your employer, you could be exploited by the landlord whose house you're living in. You could be, um, you, and also you're probably going to be like a contract worker who doesn't necessarily have like a permanent status. So there's a sense that like you can't rely on the jobs market to give you a sense of security or identity in life. So she has contempt for that, and I and I understand that coming from a coming from that politically rather than like I don't necessarily think that it's an aspect of privilege to think the whole system is rigged, which it is. Um, and she expresses that by having complete contempt for the idea of a job. But nonetheless, she's working. She works in the novel. I mean, she has a job. So over the course, then her her physical health kind of wanes in a way that that's quite you know dramatic. Although she 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 hides a lot of the drama, um, and uh, I don't really want to spoil it. But she does receive a a, a, a diagnosis of uh, endometriosis. Um, so I was wondering why you chose to give Francis that particular condition. Was it was was that the one that you immediately came to mind, or why why endometriosis? Um, it was it was like. One that I knew about, so I wouldn't have to do that much research. And um, it felt right because it taps into, I guess, um, in a sense, it taps into issues of insecurity that have to do with her femininity. And and that's not like I don't want to sound like like I'm getting too into... Um, biological determinism like obviously not everyone who has experiences menstruation is a woman and and um, and all that but I think for her there is a sense in which that experience is tied to her experience of femininity and um, and she's insecure about not living up to the ideals of womanhood that she sets herself and she's um, insecure about and I think all that is sort of tied as well to her relationship with Nick which is the first relationship with a man that she's had and again that's sort of another um sense in which her um identity as a woman comes into question for her because obviously it's so much that we're brought up to believe that having a relationship with a man is sort of the culmination the ultimate experience of womanhood and for Frances I mean she's bisexual she may have gone through her whole life never having a relationship with a man but nonetheless when it happens it's 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 like there's so much cultural messaging around it that it's difficult for her to process. And similarly, I think with issues around, um, and using the phrase the female body is a bit whatever, but um, issues around menstruation and stuff like that, um, it touches on to these sort of identity issues um, that for her she hasn't quite worked out and that obviously unearthed some insecurities. Um, and I feel like I get in a, a bit inarticulate when I talk about that because um, I don't really have the theory there. I just kind of worked my way through that section doing what I thought made sense for Francis psychologically and trying to, but I felt like I was kind of fumbling my way through it in the dark. Like I didn't have a coherent, oh, here's the political point I'm trying to make here. Um, I didn't. So it was just, I was trying to sort of feel my way through it and sense what would work for her and what would sort of, de- what would get to the heart of the development that I was trying to bring her through. Well, I mean, I think like, Twenty-one is a very young is very young uh, on one level, but it, it, even at twenty-one, people start to suddenly see how maybe uh, particular particular things, particular possibilities are are become closed off to them. You know, then they'll never do certain things. And of course, it is the case that that some people with endometriosis uh, d- uh, don't can't have children. Um, so she's kind of that's part of her crisis in in a way towards the towards the end of the novel. Yeah, but. very much so. Yeah, and there's the scene where she meets a little baby. <laughs> she gets quite emotional. And again, like you can say, uh, oh, what's this? You know, privileged twenty one year old. Why is she getting upset about that? And you know, like fair enough fine. Uh, But I think for her, it is quite difficult to face up to the fact that like, you know, she does have this 
long-term incurable condition which causes her quite a bit of physical distress and which also means you know she may never get to have certain experiences and it's something that you know as most very young like college students have probably never thought of and certainly I hadn't Uh, and I wasn't much older than Francis when I was writing the book I was 23 um so I I yeah, I mean, you're right. It was, a, it was a sense of coming to terms with almost one's own mortality through the projection of futures that you may never have access to. And in this, and in this case, a particularly sort of gendered version of that in the sense that there might be a type of woman that she can never be. Or certainly that's how she sees it for herself at that, at that moment. And it's quite a kind of crushing realisation that that might even be possible for her. Because certainly I think in the beginning of the book, it's she and Bobby have a very like the world is our oyster kind of attitude. However justified that might be, I don't know but um, coming to terms with the reality that that's never quite the case is difficult for her, I think. So, I mean, the other thing about endometriosis is that sometimes it it can take a long time to get a diagnosis of it. So it almost feels like a kind of a a political thing that uh, sort of a female suffering not not being recognised sometimes, or or at least uh, it can take some some years before people really realise what's what's wrong. But I was interested in the contrast between that and um, and and Nick's men- mental health because um, it feels like the other characters around Nick are quite good at understanding that Nick suffers from depression, but maybe Francis is less uh, is is less generous to Nick perhaps than they are because she's suffering from her own hidden problems. I mean, what kind of what kind of uh, how do you approach? Uh, Nick's depression in the book how important is it that he is uh, that's the fundamental part of his character or is it just does it influence how he behaves with Francis yeah I think um, and and this isn't to say obviously that everyone who has ever suffered from depression has a certain type of character or personality that's obviously not the case I mean anyone you know can happen to anyone um, but I think in, in Nick's case it's probably fair to say that he has a quite depressive outlook um, as well as suffering from clinical depression um, and he kind of he has serious episodes of depression um, but he also has a general um, his, his general outlook and his general self-perception I think is shaped to a large degree by a sort of a, a kind of um, depressive perspective um, and I do think that's a big um, part of his character and I think it's something that as you rightly point out Francis doesn't really understand uh, he tells her um, not immediately but uh, you know it's not like he waits at the very end of the book to tell her that you know he he's, he suffers and he's sometimes very ill um, and I think she probably just thinks like it's like having some kind of recurrent like recurrent health problem like oh sometimes you have a broken leg but then when you don't have one anymore you're fine um whereas in fact it's something that he basically struggles with on a, on a consistent basis and she probably doesn't really understand that but I, I, th- I also think Francis um is very aware of her um position as sort of the other woman and particularly because she's 21 and broke and doesn't really have literally owns nothing has absolutely no power or agency in any meaningful way and Nick is like wealthy and um, well connected and and also comes from a different class background and is married and in his 30s um, she feels like she has absolutely no power in that relationship she just feels like he has he has the ability to just pick me up and drop me at any time. And so it's difficult, I think, then for her coming from that position to offer a lot of emotional generosity in that relationship. And maybe to an extent, that's something that she learns as the book goes on, that actually, even when you start with a great power disparity, there's a sense in which we all still have to look after one another, even if things like gender and things like class intervene in our personal relationships and exercise power in our personal relationships. There's still a sense in which we owe one another a kind of empathic 
bond. Um, and that's something Francis isn't really willing to offer Nick at the beginning of the book, even though she's infatuated with him. Um, she's not willing to offer that sort of emotional generosity. Um, and of course, she has a mental health problem of her own, essentially, because she does... She practices uh, some some self harm. That's true. Yeah, that is true. I think Francis does struggle with um, with like anguish in the book, um, and then the extent to which that's illness. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as to say there's a clinical aspect to someone suffering extreme distress as triggered by external events, because you know it's stuff like when in moments of incredible crisis where she cannot, she feels like she physically cannot handle, um, you know, her distress and anguish, she acts out and, and she does bad things. But is she ill in the sense that she's constantly sort of, that her ability to function in her daily life, she feels is compromised by her, um, by her mental health? I don't know. Um, I don't know. And I'm, I mean, I'm not a clinician and she's also not a real person. So it's uh, <laughs> difficult to figure that one out. No, um, but it's, it's actually interesting. Sometimes uh, authors imagine the lives of their um, characters beyond the point at which the narrative mm. stops in the book. So I don't want to give away the ending, of course, but uh, it seems that Frances is maybe locked in some patterns of behaviour, but I'm just wondering whether she's also locked in the self-harm pattern of behaviour or is that... You know, or is that something that she she will overcome? Yeah, I mean, I think we have quite a narrow definition of self harm culturally, don't we? Because when someone gets bad news and then goes out and and gets absolutely hammered, um, and you know, to an extent that they've they're obviously not well, or they've passed out, or they're getting sick everywhere. We don't really think of that as self-harm. We think of that as like lads being lads, or, you know, whereas obviously that is kind of an act of bodily self-harm, really. Um, but we, we, we deem that behavior to be acceptable because everyone does it, or almost everyone does it. So it's like, well, it's normal, well, therefore it can't be pathological. Um, so what Frances does is probably a little bit less normal, but is it ultimately less harmful? I don't know. Obviously, I would like if she would stop doing it. But again, um, you know, I mean, it's a book, so... Well, that's why I was I was amazed, uh, really, at the extent to which people talked about the privilege of the characters, uh, as if that was a, a, a bad thing. Because uh, if if you know Frances is privileged in some ways, it's completely outweighed by her suffering. You know, so you really identify with her because of just how much that she goes through, uh, and how she how kind of you know how she, her her needs are not really being being met by the people around her, or at least she doesn't expect that they will be. So she doesn't she never even tries in some cases to to get the sort of support and, and love that she needs. Yeah, but then again, I mean, pr privilege is an interesting question because obviously people who are immensely privileged can suffer a lot. And, you know, Nick is an example of someone who has basically every box ticked in terms of privilege. I mean, he is like very, very privileged in every sort of possible way that you can think of. Um, and yet he suffers. Like, you can't deny that although he's a white cisgender man and he's heterosexual and he's very wealthy, et cetera, et cetera, we could go on all night. Um, he's still, like, his suffering's real. Like, I don't think anyone would say, oh, well, who cares that you have depression because you're privileged. Um, so privilege isn't, isn't, privilege is a, it's an interesting conversation to have and it's, it's deeper and it's more structural and it's not about denying that people have privilege. Like when we say male privilege or we say white privilege, we're not saying, oh, no white person has ever suffered. Um, we're saying that there are certain social structures that mean that people who don't fit into privilege categories don't necessarily have the same voice or agency as people who do. And I think, uh, you know, Francis, were she real, um, 
would probably acknowledge that, you know, being um, even from such a, she's not from a particularly financially privileged background, but being able to go to university, for example, like to take four years out of being economically productive just to study is an enormous privilege. And it puts her in a situation where she will probably snowball even more privileges later on because, you know, having a university degree gives you access to a world of privilege you might not otherwise have. And that was certainly my experience. Um, so... I think it's very right for people to point out that the, that the book is structured by um, aspects of privilege. It would be really difficult, I think, to write any book that isn't because we live in such an inequitable society and privilege impinges on so many aspects of our personal and public lives that, like, how do you disentangle all that? Like, it's everywhere. Um, so it would, be, it would be really tough. But And I think it's very legitimate for people to point that out. But I think saying it in itself isn't enough like there has to be some sort of we have to we have to move it on in some way so in, in a piece that you you wrote for the Irish Times uh, you, you said you, you thought about what a feminist uh, and socialist novel uh, might look like but only after you'd finished yeah. conversations <laughs> with friends yeah. it was at the printers um so what would a feminist or socialist novel look like would it be peopled by feminists and socialists or would it you know how would well this one's people by feminists and socialists so that's fine um <laughs> I don't think that's enough though is it or maybe it is I mean it's an interesting question the whole idea of the novel as this sort of very individualistic form that it follows the psychological development of sort of one individual um, and often emphasizes the individual as a sort of unit um and that increasingly I think why is it that we conceptualize of humanity is being composed of little units of individuals sort of moving around when really it's you know the way humans live is about families and communities um and you know there is no there is no non-social human being human beings cannot develop like we physically can't develop our brains without someone caring from us basically from birth um so the human physiology all of human biology is dependent on this caring relationship you know between between parent and child between guardian and child or whatever and I think that remains true as we get into our adult lives we're completely dependent on the networks of care that we have built up all around us the fact that the very food we eat has to be picked out of the ground by someone like we're all related to one another by these threads of sort of interrelationship um, and that are you know increasingly global so uh, it just the idea of the novel as being like well, this one person achieved this one thing or developed in this one way on their own sort of strikes me as kind of false and possibly kind of politically dangerous that we end up um, affirming or celebrating the individual perhaps at the cost of recognising how implanted that individual is within all these networks of relationships um, and that that needs to be acknowledged. And it's something I guess I tried to acknowledge in conversations with friends, maybe successfully, maybe not. And I certainly intend to keep on trying to get closer and closer to it the, the more I work. So actually, because one of the questions I'd love to ask you is what you're working on now. Sure. Um, well, I've actually just submitted my second book. Uh, so that's another novel about the same length as this one and it's about it follows two characters this time which kind of touches on what I was just saying that I increasingly kind of don't really want to work with an individual anymore and so my solution for this next book was to do two maybe like next time it'll be like 10 people um <laughs> I don't I don't know maybe it'll be no people um but it, the in the second book it follows one two characters one young man and one young woman and it follows them from the age of 18 just before they do their leaving cert um up until the end of college when they both go to college together um so it's sort of it's about the I guess the main character in the book is essentially the relationship between those two characters and how that develops 
develops. And I think that's ultimately what interests me more than how someone develops on their own. It's to see how the dynamic between two people can grow and change and how, in a sense, it's composed of more than two individuals, that it becomes sort of more than the sum of its parts in that sense. Um, and that's what I was interested in exploring. So it's set over a much longer time period. Obviously, it's like four years and this is only six months. Um, so it was technically full of problems for me, um, but hopefully I've solved most of them and uh, the whole editing process still remains to be done. So, And is it a Dublin novel? Because this is, this is a great Dublin novel. It's, it's a Dublin... Well, it's first the first part of it when they're in school is set in Sligo. Um, and then they go to college in Trinity. So, yeah, <laughs> there is a bit of Dublin in it, too. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah, you mentioned at this, uh, earlier on that um, Conversations with Friends is your first published novel because you think you did write earlier novels when you were quite young, in yeah. fact. What were they? What were they like? <laughs> they were actually really similar. <laughs> like the same themes and concerns have not gone away. It's funny, and I've actually talked to other writer friends of mine, and this is like a thing that if you go back and look at what you were writing when you were like fifteen or sixteen, it's kind of like the same as what you're writing now, but just really bad. So I wonder if, like, in ten years, I'm going to be looking at this, being like, oh my god, and <laughs> um, the themes are there, but the style just hadn't developed. Um, but no, like I was writing when I was fifteen. I was writing, you know, stuff about. Um, people getting into relationships and breaking up and getting back together that was sort of my my bread and butter as a as a as a teen and and still is well so. there is something absolutely fascinating about exes isn't there yeah. how they how they carry on if they're in a, a forced situation you know where they're together but uh, I should say together in sort of the physical environment of being together without being still <laughs> a couple yeah. plenty <laughs> of um momentum and stuff to be found in that I think yeah so just uh, go just uh, uh, go back to the sort of writing process for you I get the impression that you write quite fast you kind of you get kind of get into a kind of a creative frenzy is, yeah. is that is that that's how you wrote conversations with friends but is that how it's going to be with this was that how it was with the second novel or um. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a lot, um, and I guess when I was writing, I was writing quickly. But overall, the whole the whole second novel took me two years, so I I don't think that's uh, immensely fast. I think it's like respectable, but not like, <laughs> but not like breaking any records. Um, yeah, but when I'm writing, I get the sense that I'm writing a lot and and very quickly and as you say very intensely like I definitely have the sensation of like I look at the clock and it's like one in the morning and I'm like oh my, oh my god I thought that it was like dinner time what what just happened to my day because I'm so wrapped up in and it's usually when that happens it's one paragraph and I realize like <laughs> I've been working on this paragraph for four hours and I sort of feel like in my brain like this is not good I need to go and like breathe some fresh air or something this can't possibly be healthy um but yeah and I, I yeah so you do get sucked into the vortex of a paragraph sometimes and that's not always great but in general I do work very intensely and I, I really enjoy working I really love when I'm working on a book being with the characters and um, I just like spending time with them and sort of you know pushing them into conflicts but conflicts that I think will ultimately develop them <laughs> as human beings I'm not just making them suffer for no reason that would be quite sadistic um no I really I really enjoy it and I feel absolutely blessed to be able to do it so now that I can do it full-time I, I do try and, and do as much of it as I can 
Is there a point in the week where, you, you, as you say, you, you kind of hit, you hit a wall and you have to go for a walk or something and t- take a step back? Yeah, but it's never as, I wish it was as regimented as like, oh, Tuesday again, oh no. <laughs> it's like, you know, it can be going well for like two weeks and then it can be going badly for a month or, you know, the other way. Um, you never know when it's going to hit and you can be really looking forward to writing, you know, the next scene and think, oh yeah, I've, I, like, I've nailed this one, this one's going to be fine. And then you sit down and that's the one that you, that kills you, that you're struggling with or that you end up having to take out completely. So it's it's really hard to predict how it's going to go and for that reason when it's going well you really feel like I have to sit here and not get up and often I'll like forget to eat lunch or forget to like drink water or whatever because I'm like I have to do this while the going is good I have to get it done um so it can be quite yeah again quite intense in that sense so one thing I didn't mention in the in the introduction is that you were a champion debater in, in or I in thought we were going to get away without having to talk about this <laughs> It's really interesting uh, that you were the the top competitive debater at the European University's Debating Championships 2013. Is that correct? (laughs) Unfortunately, I must Um, confirm that that is correct. But it is interesting because there must be some similarities and obviously differences between standing up in a debate and speaking to a certain extent with with a lot of spontaneity and sitting down and constructing a passage of of fiction in, 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 in somebody else's narrative voice or a narrative voice that you've created. So there's obviously a link between the skills uh, you're able to do both people <laughs> people insist that there is <laughs> and so I guess who am I to say there isn't but I uh, I don't I'm certainly not conscious of using the same skill set now I will say what we're doing now draws on that skill set that, that I developed in college which is um, kind of just being able to get up in front of people and, and talk without like wanting the floor to swallow me um, and certainly when I started debating that was like I would be like legs shaking and like stuttering and really uncomfortable and um, and I just I just developed the, the you know the ability to kind of do it without like really hating myself um, and and that has you know that has stood to me because like here we are and this has all been fairly comfortable um, so <laughs> that's that's fine but in that sense I think it's so and people tell kids to do it because you know it'll like it'll develop their public speaking skills and so in that sense it, it like it did and that was fine and I'm glad that I have them now I mean however good they are I don't know but it, it like I you know I can do it without great psychological damage to myself. That, that, that I can say. Um, but do you prefer it when it's over or? <laughs> I, I, you know, at this point, I'm just, yeah, I'm, it's neutral. Now, they do say that the, the shyer the child or the more introverted, I probably should say, that the child, the, 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 the greater the benefit and the, the more the, the more benefit can, can spring from just basically shoving them, <laughs> shoving them into it. That's true. I think for me, it was a lot of, um, it was sort of, what interested me was the kind of ritualized aggression. Like uh, I could get really angry about a debate that like prior to being told what the debate was about, I would not have had a clue, no interest whatsoever. <laughs> and yet I would be able to work myself up into this sort of like slightly self-righteous, like how could anyone disagree with me, even though I was just told what side of the debate to speak on. Um, so that was, that was quite interesting as a kind of, I don't know what exactly what in my character I was tapping into there, some kind of, um, some kind of deeply self-righteous, almost Puritan streak that I didn't know I had um but that I have to say does not serve me well at all with fiction you can't really you can't really bring that um you know deep conviction in your own um intrinsic rightness to fiction you have to kind of you have to kind of go into the gray areas a bit and explore stuff where you're not completely convinced where it's going to lead you and sort of be comfortable with not being right and also be open to criticism which is which is difficult um and which is a skill set you don't really develop through debating but that you certainly have to develop at a rapid pace when you publish a book 
yeah, I think being open to criticism is one of the hardest skills <laughs> there is out there. But luckily, I don't. I didn't come across any for conversations with friends because <laughs> it is oh, really a, an excellent, excellent book, and I recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it yet. And also, I look forward to the next book. Um, but for now, I want to thank everybody in this live audience for coming to the Irish Times podcast event. Thanks to uh, our sound engineer, JJ Vernon, and to Kate Cunningham and everyone at the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. And a very special thanks to Sally Rooney. Thank you.